We've been having a conversation the last month or so here at Frontline around American gods, American gods. We've been talking about the religious practices of Americans that don't seem to be religious, but at the core of them are deeply religious. We've been exploring various gods in our culture that have all kinds of different gospels that they preach to people in America. Gospels of freedom, gospels of joy, gospels of happiness. And what we found as we've looked at these gods is that they actually don't keep their promises. They promise to be able to bring identity into our lives, to bring joy into our lives, to be the meaning of our lives, to be the security of our lives. And the problem with all of these gods in the American pantheon is that they say really beautiful stuff, but they don't keep up their end of the bargain. Instead of making us more free, they leave us in bondage. Throughout the last several weeks, we've been looking at how the gospel of Jesus really is good news. It's good news. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, the message of Jesus, the good news of Jesus is really good news. One of the ways in which it's really good news is it actually confronts the gods that are vying for your allegiance. The gods that keep telling you things and don't keep their word. The good news of Jesus actually exposes those gods for what they are and it invites you into a relationship with the real God so that the desires and the directions of your life can get lined up with reality. Now, here's what I think you've seen over the last few weeks. These American gods that want your allegiance, they're not in themselves always bad things. We've talked about the God of self. It's not bad to be a self. It's not bad to understand who you are as a unique human being. But when that God of self is elevated to ultimate supremacy in your life, that's when good things become really destructive things. We've talked about things like politics and freedom, and we have yet to talk about sex and money. That's coming in the next few weeks. These things in themselves are not bad things, but when they become ultimate in our lives, our lives get tied up with chains that we cannot break on our own. Now, today's God that we're gonna discuss is probably the trickiest of all the gods, It's really tricky. It's been difficult for me to even think about this God and try to wrestle through my relationship with this God and what repentance from this God really looks like. And the thing that makes this God so darn tricky is that this God is really connected to the purpose that we were created for as human beings. This is a God that's really close to your purpose. It's close to the destiny that God formed you to walk in. Today's God is the God of happiness, the God of happiness. And I want to be really clear up front, happiness itself is not a bad thing. In some ways, human beings can't help but to desire to be happy. And that's actually a way that God created you and he formed you for his glory. Uh, Christianity is radically pro-joy, right? The message of Jesus is not be bummed out to the glory of God, right? Uh, Jesus actually came that you might have life and have it abundantly. So Christianity is pro-happiness. The answer to bad books like Your Best Life Now by Joel Osteen is not to write equally bad books, your your worst life now, right? Like that's not a correction. That doesn't help us. So this God, this God of happiness is actually, it's actually close. It's close to what God wants for you but it misses it by a mile at the same time. 
It's inches away from being right, that desire for happiness. But it's also at the very same time, it's the Grand Canyon chasm away from actually being the kind of happiness that your soul really craves. When happiness itself, when happiness itself becomes ultimate in our lives, when what we're aiming for ultimately is happiness, when happiness is the God that we make sacrifices to, when happiness is the highest form of authority in our lives, instead of getting happiness, we miss joy and we miss the deeper, more meaningful things in life. C.S. Lewis had this great metaphor that's really helpful for today's conversation. He, he talked about humanity being like an armada of ships, right? An armada of ships. So imagine massive ships out in the ocean. And he talked about three questions related to those ships. And here they are. Question one, how do you keep from taking on water and sinking as you sail in the ocean, right? That's the question of personal ethics, meaning we've got to think about how does our life move towards virtue and away from vice. That's the realm of character. And that's not really something that we talk a lot about in our culture. Um, The second question that we got to ask is how do you keep from running into other ships and sinking? It's the question of social ethics. Uh, How do you avoid banging into each other on the open seas and destroying yourself and other people's lives? Uh, That's a really deep question. And that's a question that we do tend to talk about in our culture. There's a third question, which is the most important of all though. It's the question of meaning. It's the question that asks, where is this armada going? What's the end for which we were created? Why were you designed? Why are we living this life? What's the purpose of humanity? What's the purpose of me as an individual human being? And I used to think that our culture didn't even try to answer that question, that last one, that we would just ignore it and kind of not talk about purpose or the end for which we were created. But I actually think the God of happiness has won the day as the main answer that we give as Americans to that question. What's the purpose of life? What's well, happiness? Why are you here? Well, it's to find happiness. What's the point of being a human being? Well, it's a journey to try to explore what's gonna make us happy. And again, that's close to the truth, but it's also really far away from the real answer that Jesus has in scripture. So let me give you a few things to help you think about our lives and our culture. And then we're going to open up to Matthew chapter five, which is the first book in the New Testament. And we're going to look at some of the words of Jesus about happiness. A few things that I want you to take note of. First, happiness is a deep idol that drives most of our other idols. So these idols like money and sex, these idols of success and image, a lot of these idols that we struggle with as human beings, a lot of these American gods that we worship, at the root of those gods is this deeper God, the God of happiness. What happens in our culture is that happiness is so ultimate that happiness is the only claim to authority that most people in America are willing to receive. So what does that mean? Well, it means that typically we don't ask the question, is this choice a good choice? Is this choice a virtuous choice? Is this choice a true choice? Um, Is this a choice that's gonna help me honor the relationships that God's put in my life? Usually those questions, if we ask them at all, are way in the background. And the question that's front and center in American minds is, will this make me happy? Will this make me happy? 
And with all the gods that Americans worship, this is the God that's gonna demand some of the deepest and most painful sacrifices if you worship happiness. Kids get sacrificed on the altar of work and money all the time as we pursue happiness. Marriage covenants get sacrificed on the altar of happiness all the time. I mean, I can't even tell you how often I hear men that I'm in relationship with, men in our church that leave their wives, leave their families. And the answer is, man, I, I just, I'm just not happy. I got to find happiness. And this lover, I think, is going to bring the key to happiness. So I'm leaving, I'm leaving my commitment to my family. Bodies and souls of uh, sex workers in our nation get sacrificed on the altar of sexual happiness all the time. Even our health, our own personal health gets sacrificed to the God of happiness in a world with so much pain and difficulty. Our addictions promise to make us happy and they end up leaving us empty and hollow and without the kind of life that we dreamed of. Now, the second thing I want you to see is that when we worship the God of happiness, there's really deep things really important things, meaningful things that just become technologies in our pursuit of happiness. So there's really important stuff, stuff like sex, stuff like relationships, things like creation. If you worship the God of happiness, these really important things that have meaning and have substance and have a design by the living God, these really important things just become happiness technologies as we try to life hack our way into happiness. So for many of us, sex is nothing more than a tool to try to get happiness. Money's nothing more than just a tool to try to get happiness. Career's nothing more than just a tool to try to pursue happiness. And one of the greatest tragedies is that people, People, instead of being treated like immortal image bearers of the most high God with value and dignity and worth, often what we do is we just leave a wake of bodies behind us as we move from relationship to relationship, only seeing people as a means to our own personal happiness. In the midst of this, we tell lies about the true God. There's two lies that are equally damning, but they're opposite lies. Lie one is, the only thing God wants is for you to be happy. That's sort of the American take on God. If you believe in a God in America, usually the role of that God is to just get you the stuff that you want to be happy. That God would never challenge you. That, never, that God would never lead you certainly into a place of difficulty, pain, and suffering. The God just wants you to smile, right? He's more like a cruise director than the God that we read about in the Bible. Now, the equal lie and opposite lie is that God doesn't want you to be happy. If there is a God, he's totally freaked out by pleasure in all of its forms, right? He doesn't want you to smile. He doesn't want you to laugh. He's kind of grumpy. He's got a headache. He needs to get on medication. And, and that God, if you worship and follow him, will do everything in his power to try to make your life gray and boring. Both of those are lies that reduce good things that God created to just happiness technologies, now, the third thing that I want you to see, and this is where it starts to get a little personal in the room. When we worship the God of happiness, comfort becomes the non-negotiable necessity of life. When we worship the God of, com of happiness, comfort is a non-negotiable. And the problem with that, one of the many problems with that, is that there's never been in the history of the world a meaningful life, a deep life, a beautiful life, that was simultaneously a comfortable life. 
When comfort becomes indispensable in the worship of the God of happiness, we start doing crazy things like we start over-medicating ourselves and self-medicating ourselves because life's painful and we just want the pain to stop. Can I get an amen? And what starts to happen, and, and I wanna be really clear on this, like I praise God for the common grace of medicine. Man, it's so beautiful and good that God orchestrates truth in the world that's not just truth in the church, but it's truth also in the marketplace and in the realm of science. And and man, it's a real blessing if you're dealing with chronic depression to be able to treat that holistically. It's a good thing. It's a good thing if you're dealing with chronic depression to be able to get on medication that can take the edge off of that, help you. If you're, if you're racked with crippling anxiety, it's a good thing to be able to use medicine in, in right ways so that you can think about the rest of your life and not be crushed under the weight of that. But doesn't it feel a little bit that we live in a cultural moment where the last thing we can tolerate is discomfort and suffering in any way and we're looking for a pill that'll fix it? And what starts to happen, man, what starts to happen is the things that we thought would save us start to become the very things that are killing us. That's the definition of addiction. When the thing that you thought was the cure starts to be the source of the sickness, you're addicted. You're addicted. And that's happening in our culture with money and food and drink and sex and porn and a thousand other things because the last thing we can tolerate in a culture that worships happiness is the discomfort of being a human being in a broken world. We have no room for suffering in this view of things. And that leads to an inability to be challenged about anything, right? We, we live in a world that abounds with trigger warnings and the whole take on safe places, uh, which doesn't necessarily mean a safe place to actually disagree and be protected from violence, but a safe place meaning you, you don't have to get challenged. What is that related to? Well, it's related to the worship of the God of happiness, Um, Let me read you a quote. This will go down in the history of Frontline as literally the most boring and obscure quotes that have ever been brought into a sermon. It's it's from churchexecutive.com, in case you want to put that on your favorites bar. It's a quote about selecting chairs for churches in their sanctuaries. So I know you're on the edge of your seat. Are you ready for this? Listen to this quote. Ergonomics are more than just facts and figures gathered to assist in the creation of various types of seating. I'm just going to let that hang in the air for a minute. <laughs> the profundity of that statement, just, just savor that for a moment. They go on to say in this article, rather, the study of ergonomics provides comfortable seating that allows the congregation to fully enjoy the sermon, the primary purpose of the worship experience. Okay, that's crazy. <laughs> to, think, to think that the primary purpose of gathering together for the preaching of God's word and for the sacraments of baptism and communion is entertainment and comfort is so anti-Christ. I don't even know what to do with that. Well, that's related to the God of happiness so being enshrined in our American culture that even church is just a place where you go to have your consumeristic felt needs met. Instead of being challenged and being transformed, we want to have our ears tickled. Um, I, I try to avoid most social media, not because it's bad in itself, but because I'm very immature and sinful. 
And uh, one of the things I try to not do is go down the rabbit trails of like negative social media posts about Frontline Church with the comments. Uh, But every now and then, every now and then, I put on my boots and I wade into those waters. And there was one this last week where it was like all kinds of criticism about the church and things we do wrong. And there was this one comment that was so hilarious and tragic at the same time. And here's what it was. It's like that church just wants people to change. (laughs) And I was kind of like, well, yeah, a little bit. A little bit. Because like, I don't know about you, but I look at my life and I kind of need to change. I, I should... I sure could use a little bit more faith, hope, and love in my life. Maybe changing ain't such a bad thing. See, the point being in this cultural moment with all, with all of the pain of this world coming against us, if your God is happiness, you can't be challenged. You can't be stretched. You always will try to take the wide road, even if the wide road leads to destruction. And one of the saddest things about all that is in a culture that worships happiness, if we try to answer that third question of C.S. Lewis, what's the purpose of the armada with happiness? It means we're gonna be stuck constantly pretending instead of being honest about what's broken in our lives. If we worship the God of happiness, if the primary narrative of America is it's all about happiness and you're sad or your life's a mess or you're depressed or you're anxious or your marriage is not going great, or you're really struggling to know how to lead your kids, or you're in debt up to your eyeballs, the last thing you can do if the God that we worship is happiness is raise your hand and say, I'm not okay, can somebody help me? This leads to our our Instagram moment, right? It's like, like nobody's putting real life on Instagram, right? It's like mothering is not always about having the perfect organic snack and craft. Life does not look like an endless succession of really cool meals. Hmm, Look at that, snap. Real life is really messed up. It's really messed up. And we're really messed up and it's really weighty and it's really difficult and it's really hard. But if the God that we worship is happiness, nobody's gonna have the courage to stand up and say, hey, maybe the emperor is naked. So we get stuck pretending. Um, This is an aside, but I think it's really important. I think one of the reasons why white evangelicals in our culture are having such a difficult time bearing the burden that our brothers and sisters of color are carrying in our culture and in our society, when things like systemic racism comes up, when the reality of, of privilege comes up, I think one of the reasons there are so many white evangelicals that are quick to say, oh, slavery was a long time ago, Jim Crow's done, everything's okay, is because the reality of what our brothers and sisters of color face in the United States, it doesn't fit in with the primary narrative of happiness that we want to believe is true. So here's what I want you to see, friends. The point of today is not to encourage you to give up on the desire for happiness. (laughs) The point of today is to not get you to give up on dreaming of a happy life. The point is to say, if we keep chasing happiness itself, we're never gonna get it. Happiness is elusive and the tools that we use fade and they fall apart. And about the time you think you've got happiness in your grasp, happiness will juke you and break your ankles because if you go for happiness itself, you're never going to get it. 
And not only will you miss happiness, but you'll miss out on a whole lot of things that are required for a deep and beautiful life. You were made, you were made to experience deep, lasting, eternal happiness in a relationship with a God who is truly happy. You were created for that kind of joy. Jesus actually showed up in the flesh 2,000 years ago, 100% God and 100% man, to reveal to us who God really is and to pay the price that we deserved so that we could actually be in relationship with him, leading to a kind of happiness that's not just rooted in circumstances being okay, but that's rooted in something deeper and more beautiful, more lasting and more real. And what Jesus does in Matthew chapter five is he opens up this famous sermon he preached called the Sermon on the Mount with his take on happiness. What is real happiness? What does it look like? How is it found? How do we get it? Jesus in this sermon says multiple times, blessed or blessed. And then he adds things like, are the poor, are those who mourn. And that word blessed or blessed comes from a Latin word that means happiness, not just shallow happiness, but deep happiness, abiding happiness, joyful happiness. It's a kind of happiness that lines up with what's real and true and lasting. So here's the words of Jesus about our happiness. Matthew chapter five, starting in verse two, let me read it to you. And he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus is talking about a kind of happiness here that's connected to the king and his kingdom. It's a kind of happiness that doesn't rearrange all the circumstances of your life to be easy, but it's a kind of happiness that can't be destroyed when the circumstances of your life fall apart. Let me take a few of these today to try to serve you. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here's what he's saying. Happiness is ultimately not gonna be found in the kingdoms of this world. This world can't deliver on the kind of happiness that human beings crave, the kind of happiness that can't be bought, the kind of happiness that no amount of vacations can fill, the kind of happiness that human beings really long for, that kind of like deep down to your toes happiness that's got substance and gur to it. That kind of happiness is not found in the kingdoms of this world. It's found in the unshakable kingdom of God. And the way into that kingdom, the way to start tasting of that happiness is found by being poor in spirit. 
How do you enter into this kingdom of happiness? Well, it's not by being the right kind of person in the views of the world, right? You don't enter into this kingdom by being a really good person or a really moral person. There's not one political type that are invited into this kingdom. It's not the beautiful people that are invited in. It's not. The people that are welcomed into this kingdom, entrance into this kingdom is predicated upon having a self-awareness of your poverty of spirit that means, hey, if there's not a savior to rescue me, I'm sunk. Poverty in spirit is looking at your life and knowing, hey, there are things inside of me that have gone so deeply wrong. If there's not something on the outside of me that can meet me in this brokenness and meet me in this loss, I am totally sunk. This poverty of spirit is what leads us to actually being willing to receive and trust in Jesus as a king and to receive a kingdom that's a kingdom of happiness with his reign poverty of spirit. Hey, one of the things that freaks me out about doing ministry in this part of the world is how many people think that they're so good they don't need Jesus. I love getting to work with people that are in the midst of addiction because when you're totally racked with addiction, when, when you've got to the bottom of addiction and you got nothing left and you've lost all of, you've lost all of your relationships, in, in that moment, there comes a sobriety that says, hey man, if there's not something outside of me that can reach into this mess, I'm in trouble. But whoa, man, what a dangerous place to be when everything is going great and you don't realize just how profoundly needy you are for rescue. He goes on and adds in verse four, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. This is profound. Here's what he's saying. Happiness isn't found in avoiding pain. And what a lot of us try to do with this world that we live in where dreams die and relationships die and bodies get sick. What a lot of us try to do is we try to insulate ourselves from the pain of the world. What Jesus is saying throughout his teaching is that there's no way to insulate yourself from the loss and pain of this world. Sin has brought death. And no matter where you live, no matter how much money you make, no matter how great your house is, no matter how much wheatgrass you drink and yoga you do, you are going to suffer in this world. And if you try to hide from that suffering, you're still gonna hurt And you're also going to miss out on actually living life. C.S. Lewis said that if you love anything in this world, including a pet, you're guaranteed to get your heart broken. What Jesus says here is there's a kind of happiness that he wants to bring. That's not a happiness that keeps you from all the things in this world that are sad. It's a kind of happiness where in the midst of your mourning, Jesus moves towards you, not away from you. Blessed are those who mourn. There's so much mourning in our church. I know this is not a day where people want to talk about it, but there's so many people that brought such deep ache into this room today. There's not a week that goes by in our church where we don't hear stories of the pain of infertility, lost children, stories of abuse, so much pain in this room. And being a follower of Jesus doesn't mean that you get a pass on the pain of this world, but here's what it means. True happiness is not 
avoiding mourning. True happiness is seeing that every time you mourn, it's an invitation to actually sit with Jesus who's going to meet you there. See, here's what you need to know about Jesus. When you're mourning, he never points his finger in your chest to tell you to just get over it. When you're mourning, Jesus doesn't ever shame you or mock you or call you weak. Because scripture says that Jesus himself is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So if there's ache in your heart today, what the savior, this king, who brings this kingdom of true, deep, lasting happiness, what he wants to do is move towards you and sit with you in your pain. He wants to be with you in your pain. He wants to love you in your pain. Next, Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What, what does this mean? This word meek is particularly hard for men to swallow because it just sounds like weak. Like I hear the word meek and I just think of wearing sandals with socks, right? <laughs> and some of the guys in the room are like, oh, is that a bad thing? You should ask your wife about that. Get, get her opinion. <laughs> but Jesus is saying something really beautiful here. When he says, blessed are the meek or happy are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. Here's what he's saying. Happiness isn't going to be found in the world's power grabs. The kingdom of this world, the kingdom of darkness, is all about life being a power grab. Money's about a power grab. Privilege is about a power grab. Sex is about a power grab. Career is about a power grab. In this world, we keep trying to get more power so that we can get more happiness. And what Jesus is saying here is, listen, it's actually the opposite. It's a gentleness of spirit that trusts in the power of God that leads the entire world to being yours. The meek will inherit the earth, meaning the gentle of heart that trust in the king and in his kingdom and his power don't have to live a terrified life that you might lose power and privilege. You can actually receive his power and you can give your life away. Let me do one more. Verse six, blessed are those who are hungry and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. As we've talked about these American gods, have you guys noticed how all these gods are connected to really deep desires? Like it's really deep, the desire that we have inside of us. And in some ways being a human is to just be this being that's full of desire. We've got all these desires and we point these desires at these created things and we ask them to do something for us they can't do. You would think that Jesus would come and say, hey, I'm gonna end desire in my kingdom. I'm gonna remove desire. But he does something really different with desire. He, he actually takes desire in his kingdom and he changes its direction and its quality. And he actually amplifies desire instead of turning it down. Here's what C.S. Lewis wrote about it. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospel, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far 
too easily pleased. What Jesus does to bring this blessedness, this happiness, is he actually meets us in the midst of our desires to reshape and redirect our deepest desires in a direction that actually has some answers for you. When God starts to become your treasure, like when you realize that money pales in comparison to the beauty and splendor of the living God or sex just pales in comparison to the beauty and splendor of the living God. When you start to realize that following Jesus doesn't mean your life is going to be easy, but it means you get him. What's happening is your desires are being reformed and redirected and renewed and reshaped in a direction that actually leads to happiness. This feels sometimes like being a lot like the apostle Peter in that moment where everybody's leaving Jesus because he's so offensive. He's confronting their gods and nobody wants their gods to be taken away and everybody's leaving. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, hey, are you guys gonna leave too? And Peter looks at Jesus and he says, hey, where else would I go? You have the words of life. This is what Jesus does with desire. He redeems it to be a desire, a hunger, a thirst, a longing for righteousness to actually find identity and meaning and cleansing and redemption and a future and a hope in the living God. Now, in the midst of all this, I want so much for you to be happy. I really do. I want to be happy. I want my kids to be happy. And there's a way in which a vacation does something that feels a bit like happiness or a nice house or a promotion or a good meal. And those things aren't bad. But that kind of happiness that's all dependent on external circumstances going well is a kind of happiness that never goes deep enough. It never lasts long enough. And it's guaranteed throughout the course of our lives to at times just disappear on you. And what Jesus wants for you is to invite you to actually receive a beautiful replacement, the God of happiness for the King, the true God, who brings a kind of happiness that's actually way more beautiful, way more deep and way more lasting. It's only in Jesus that you can be sad and deeply happy at the same time. You can mourn and you can be honest about what sucks in life. And you can do all of that with unrelenting hope and a kind of joy that nobody can rob from you. Our God is the only one, the real God is the only one that can take the worst things in this world, the worst things in this world and actually work in your life in such a miraculous, crazy way that the very worst things that have happened in your life are somehow redeemed and become used to shape you and to form you for something eternal and beautiful. Beautiful.